Good morning. The scripture reading for this morning is the parable of the ten minus from Luke chapter 10 or chapter 19 verses 11 through 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made me ten minas more. And he said to to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to the man, I will condemn you with your very own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minus. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minus. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Good morning. Thanks, Ryan, for that introduction. That uh, actually means a lot, coming from the guy who calls himself the Prince of Saddleback, so thank you. Uh, Good morning. My name's Matt. Uh, we're, We're in, believe it or not, we're in our seventh week seventh week of a ten-week series, looking at the parables of Jesus. And this morning we're looking at a parable from Luke 19 called the Ten Minas. Uh, it's about three guys and their investment strategies. As you heard, I work on Wall Street, so this is fitting for me. It's fitting for uh, our church, where we are, and fitting for where a lot of you work. Um, the, the, the idea, a lot of you have been around Wall Street for a few years, and you know that the, the idea of investing for Jesus has been around for a while. Some have even taken it pretty literally. You may remember, if you've been around Wall Street, back in 2009, there was a group called Faith Shares. They launched a series of Christian investment funds. They actually had a fairly big public launch. They even rang the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange to celebrate their first day of trading. My favorite part, they had five different funds, each allowing investors to pick a different investment strategy based on their particular denomination. There was a Baptist fund. The Baptist fund refused to invest in any company that made any revenue off of anything having to do with alcohol. There was a Methodist fund, had a bit more tolerance for alcohol, but wouldn't invest in anything having anything to do with gambling. There was a Lutheran fund, apparently they were okay with alcohol and gambling, but they wouldn't invest in anything having anything to do with military weaponry. Finally, Wall Street was safe for Christians. I think if uh, Ryan and Jacob had been more on top of it, we could have had a great LMCC fund. 
would have invested in things like baby stroller companies, <laughs> toy stores, maybe microbreweries, perhaps companies, perhaps companies that help people move to Park Slope, or actually anything based in Park Slope for that matter. But too late, within 18 months, the funds shut down due to a lack of investors. Uh, I'm not necessarily trying to make fun of that. I can say that with a straight face. Um, but I will say that this parable is not about that kind of investing. It's not about making Wall Street safe for Christians. On the surface, it is about money, and I think it ought to change the way you think about money, but it's actually about a lot more than money. And I think it ought to change the way you think about just about everything in your life. Whether you know anything about financial investing or not, this story is relevant to us. In fact, it's specifically directed to us, to followers of Jesus who are living at this particular point in human history, the time between when Jesus left and when he will return as God's appointed king. This is, uh, to warn you ahead of time, this is a tough parable. It's really tough. It's going gonna, it's gonna to raise a lot of questions. It may even cause you to question the character of Jesus. Is he harsh and demanding? Will he slaughter people? Is there a judgment day for Christians? Will we have to stand before him and give an account of our lives? And what about this idea of rewards? Is it really the case that we will get different rewards in heaven based on our level of faithfulness on earth? Uh, I'm going to do my best to answer some of those questions, but I probably won't do a great job. So what I encourage you to do is take those questions and don't come to me. You can try going to a real pastor but I think what you really ought to do is take those questions and go to Scripture and seek truth from the Word of God. I think to the extent there's confusion about what believers believe, it usually stems from the fact that we just don't know the Word of God as intimately as we should. Uh, this is the last parable that Jesus told before he died. I think that probably makes it important. Uh, he's at the very end of his ministry, and he's telling his followers that he's going to go away for a while. And he's going to come back as God's appointed king. And he's telling us exactly what he expects us to do while he's away. So uh, let's get into it. But first, let's pray for a minute. Lord, I, I pray that you would enter this room. pray that you'd keep distractions away from us. pray that you'd keep the worries of this world far away and small, at least for this morning. And I pray that somehow you'd speak to us through my words this morning. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Uh, like a lot of the parables we've looked at this summer, I think to really understand this, you have to know at least a little bit about the context in which Jesus is telling this. This parable occurs at the end of Luke. It occurs at the end of what's known as the travel narrative in the book of Luke. It's the narrative that chronicles Christ's journey all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem. It spans ten chapters. It starts all the way back in chapter 9. And of course, we know that it's a trip of destiny. It's not just a road trip that he's taking with his buddies. He's on his way to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. To the Jews, of course, Jerusalem wasn't just the center of Israel. It was the center of the world. It was where they expected their Messiah to be revealed. And it was where they expected to receive deliverance, political deliverance. The Jews, if you'll remember, were under foreign occupation. They had been conquered by the Roman Empire, and they yearned to be politically independent. The Old Testament had foretold of a Messiah who would come and deliver them. And the place where they, the Messiah would deliver them would be Jerusalem. So Jesus, whom his followers were rightly supposing was the Messiah, was making his way to Jerusalem. And along the way, he's performing miracles, he's healing people, he's teaching, he's doing lots of surprising things. And as you can imagine, the closer he gets to Jerusalem, the greater the expectation is 
among his followers about what's going to happen when he gets there. He's in Jericho, as he tells this parable. He's just outside Jerusalem. So he's close. And the imagination among his followers is just running wild about what's going to happen when he gets there. And Luke tells us right away in verse 11 of this parable that he, he, he goes on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So right away, we know right away that the point of this parable is to correct the misconceptions. Jesus said you're right to expect deliverance. Actually, you're even right to expect it from me. But you're wrong to expect political deliverance and you're wrong to expect it right now. You're going to have to wait a while. And Jesus uses this story to tell, the, to tell us exactly what he expects from us while we're waiting. It's a story of a nobleman. The nobleman is set to be king. He's set to inherit the throne. But in order to actually receive his crown, he's got to go away somewhere to get it. Sounds a bit strange to us. To the, to the Jews, it wouldn't have sounded so odd. As I said, they were under foreign occupation by the Roman Empire. And we know that at least in some instances, leaders within Israel had to go to Rome to have their authority ratified by the central powers there. So this nobleman has to go away somewhere to receive his coronation. But before he goes away, he calls ten of his servants, ten of his supporters, ten of his guys, and he gives them each one mina, a form of Greek currency. I did a bit of research and learned that a mina would be roughly equivalent to about $15,000 today. So it's a decent sum of money. It's not enough to make these guys massively wealthy, but it's certainly enough to do something with. And that's exactly what their to-be king commands them to do. Engage in business. He says, engage in business with this money until I get back. Use this money to help me build the kingdom that I'm going to reign over when I get back. And then we assume he goes away. And like in any good story, there's good guys and there's bad guys. At this point in the story, Jesus introduces us to the bad guy. He says the king has some enemies. Based on verse 14, it sounds like his enemies basically consist of everybody else in the country. It says his citizens hated him. So much so that they sent a delegation ahead of to wherever he's going, presumably to Rome, to try to prevent this guy's coronation as king. But of course they're not successful. The nobleman returns. He returns as king just as he said he would. And the first thing he does when he gets back is he calls his servants to him to ask what they've done with the money he's entrusted to them. First servant comes and he says, Sir, your mina. And it's interesting that he says, Your mina. There is no question in this guy's mind about whose money he had. It was not his own money. He was a steward of it. But the money belonged to his master the whole time. And he said, Sir, your mina has earned ten minas. An amazing increase. A 1,000% investment increase. And the king is impressed. Well done, good servant. And he goes on to give him a reward. Authority over ten cities. A mine has nothing compared to a city, much less ten cities. But the king says, because you were faithful with a little bit, I'm going to entrust you with a lot. And the amazing thing about this gift is that the king is inviting his servant to co-rule the kingdom with him. This is not a typical king. The second servant comes, gives his report. Sir, your mina has made five mina. Another great investment. 500% increase. The king is impressed. Again, well done. And he gives him authority over five cities. Then we hear from a third servant who's got a much different report. He comes and he says, Sir, here's your mina back. 
I, to be honest, I didn't really know what to do with it, and I was scared of you, so I kept it safe in a handkerchief. You're a severe man. You reap what you do not sow. This dude clearly has a warped view of his master, the same master who had just proven himself very generous to the other two servants. The master throws his, this guy's warped view right back at him and says, if you were so scared of me, if you thought I was such a severe man, you could have at least put in a little effort. You could have at least taken the money to a bank and earned a little interest off of it. But you didn't even do that. You kept it all for yourself, you wicked servant. And then he goes on to do something really surprising. He says, the king says to the crowd around him, take that guy's mina away from him and give it to the guy who's got ten. The crowd objects. And here, this sort of Zuccotti Park-like energy. That's not fair. He's already got ten. The king says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But to the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. Really interesting and surprising words from Jesus. He has just redefined what it means to have, and it has nothing to do with having stuff or money. It's all about having faithfulness. And Jesus says the faithful will get bigger opportunities and the unfaithful will get even their small opportunities taken away from them. Then the parable ends, that last verse. The parable ends by telling us the fate of all those citizens who had opposed the king's authority. The king says all those people who didn't want me to be king, bring them here and kill them in front of me. It's harsh. It's harsh and intense words from Jesus. And uh, I'll do my best to decipher some of that for you. But in doing so, I don't want to lose sight of the main point of this parable. And the main point of this parable is that what we do today in the present will matter in God's future. It'll matter to us for two very specific reasons. One, we're going to have to give an account of our lives to Jesus when he comes back. And two, he will reward us based on our faithfulness in this life. So there's sort of a positive and a negative motivation working together there to encourage us to be obedient to his commandment. And the commandment is to engage in business while he's away. The Bible leaves no doubt that he's coming back. He's coming back as king. His supporters wanted him to be king right now. I think I want him to be king right now. If Jesus came back today, I don't really know how it would work, but I think at least there's a good shot I could get out of my 7 a.m. meeting tomorrow. God is saying there's going to be a delay, and it's a divinely orchestrated delay. It didn't have to be this way. But by doing it this way, God gives us an opportunity to prove ourselves to be one of the faithful servants that's spoken about in this parable. God is inviting us to work with him, inviting us to contribute to his kingdom building, the kingdom that he will come back and reign over someday. And there's a small but important point in this parable throughout the New Testament is that Jesus is coming back here to earth. This is the king, in the, in the parable, just as the king comes back to wherever he started from as a nobleman and reigns there, Jesus is coming back here to earth. I, I, I think so many Christians live believing that our hope in Christ is that he's going to pluck us away, rescue us from this evil, unjust world, and take us up to heaven. And it's close. It's close, but I think it's more accurate to say that our hope in Christ is that he's coming back. And he's not going to rescue us from the world. He's going to redeem the world. And he wants us to be part of that work. And the amazing thing is, I don't know how it's all going to work. The Bible talks about human history ending when Jesus comes back. He brings heaven with him. There's a new heaven and a new earth. 
emerge together, and that's where God lives with his people. I don't know how that any of that's going to work, but it doesn't seem like too much of a stretch to assume that the work we do on earth, if it's done in the Lord, will somehow get used by God in that new world. In the parable, the king, king comes back, he doesn't destroy the miners. He doesn't destroy the fruits of their labor. He redistributes them a little bit, but he doesn't destroy them. Consistent with one of my favorite verses, 1 Corinthians 15:58. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We probably do a lot of labor that is in vain, but our labor in the Lord is not in vain. It will matter in God's future. N.T. Wright is, a, is an author and a, and a British theologian, and he writes this about our work in the Lord. You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's only going to be thrown into a fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's only going to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange as though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become, in due course, part of God's new world. It's amazing. It's amazing. Jesus wants us to be busy while he's not physically present on this earth because he wants to use us to help him build his kingdom. And the amazing thing about that, that means that Christianity is not just about what Jesus can do in us and for us. It is about that. But at a much deeper and more powerful level, Christianity is about what God wants to do through us. And that ought to change the way you think about everything in your life. Jesus has given us gifts. Time, money, talent, resources. He's given them all to us with the expectation that we will use these resources, we will use these minas to help him build his kingdom. The same thing you or I would expect if we entrusted our money to a financial advisor to help us save for our retirement or a kid's college fund. We're expecting that person to do something with that money, to help grow it. And Jesus says, I want you to view your lives as a steward of my resources. And the first thing you've got to do if you're a steward and you're trying to invest something, the first thing you've got to do with, with whatever you've got is to let go of it. Let go of it. Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a missionary and a martyr, and he wrote in his diary while he was still in college, he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what you cannot lose. Jim was killed in 1956 at the age of 28 while serving as a missionary in Ecuador. He gave up everything, including his own life. Yeah, you're a Christian. Even your own life is not yours. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. If you're a Christian, you are not your own. In fact, you're doubly God. He made you. And then when we screwed it up, he bought us back with his blood. If you're not a Christian, that's what's on offer by this faith, to belong to God and to use your life to glorify him. And that may not sound exciting, that may not sound interesting at all until you get to a point in your life when you realize it's the only thing you were made to do. I spent most of my life, I know it's not true, but I spent most of my life living as if pursuing my own happiness and pursuing God's glory are two separate paths. They're not two separate paths. G.K. Chesterton said the man who knocks at the door of a brothel and the man who kneels at the communion table are speaking the same thing. <laughs> One's clearly looking in the wrong place, but they're both looking for God. Just to be clear, my wife is here. I've never knocked at the door of a, of a brothel. <laughs> I don't even know if that's how it works. You really have to knock? <laughs> but I've certainly done 
tons of things over and over again that are seeking selfishly my own happiness above everything else. Every time I'm disappointed, every time I come back to this realization that I will never be truly full of joy until I begin to seek my own joy by seeking God's glory first. And you do that, at least in part, by letting go of the resources that you've got, letting go of the stuff God has entrusted you with. Uh, I'm going to move on, but I want to make something very clear before I do, which is that we're not saved by our works. This parable is only 17 verses. It does not contain the whole gospel message, and it's not trying to tell us that we're saved by what we do. There's no ambiguity at all in the Bible about that. We're saved by our faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. This parable isn't trying to tell us that we get into heaven by being a good person. It is trying to tell us. It is trying to tell us that what we do matters that our faith must be kept alive and it must be kept active. It matters so much so to God that when Jesus comes back, he's going to call his supporters to him and he's going to ask us to give an account of our lives. He knows what we've done, but he wants to hear it from us. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done well in the body, whether good or bad. That ought to be something that's scary. It ought to be something that we are a little scared of. That's a perfectly appropriate response, and I think that's perfectly appropriate to be part of what motivates you as a Christian. Philippians 2 says that we've got to continue working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Continue working it out, exercising it, keeping it active, and you do so with fear and trembling. Partly a fear of God. Proverbs says, wisdom begins when you fear God. Interestingly, in the, in the parable, the third servant said he feared his master. He said he was scared of him, and that's why he didn't do anything. But the master quickly exposed him. He said, if you were really scared of me, you would have done something. That would have motivated you to do something. It turns out the third servant wasn't afraid. He was just lazy. And I think that in and of itself ought to give us fear and trembling. Not fear of God, but fear of ourselves. Fear of how easily we can sabotage our own salvation because of our laziness. Speaking of scary, the last line of that parable, the enemies of God will be slaughtered. It's intense, it is. It's important to remember that our king is loving and sacrificing as he's saying this. He's on his way to the cross to die for all of us. I think it's also important to remember that there are enemies of God. Not everyone will be happy when Jesus returns. Some have been actively trying to prevent him from becoming king. And others, like the third servant, say they are his supporters. They claim to be believers, but they're not actually doing anything about it. And Jesus says, you're either with me and you're helping me build my kingdom, or you're not. And that ought to be scary to us. That's the negative motivation. <laughs> I'm going to spend the rest of the time on the positive motivation. Sort of this positive and negative motivation working together here. The positive motivation are these rewards. I'm going to do my best to make these rewards come alive for you. If you're anything like me, sort of hard, you kind of know this concept of rewards are out there, that God will give us rewards. But it's hard to get your arms around them. It's hard to make that a real part of what motivates your life on a day-to-day -day basis. So I'll do my best to make these rewards come alive for you. But just know that whatever I can do to make these rewards sound good, in all reality, they're going to be millions of times better. The Bible says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. It has not even entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. So work with me. 
but know that these rewards are going to be so much better than whatever I can manage to say about them. There's, there's several rewards mentioned throughout the Bible. There are two that are specifically mentioned in this parable. The first one is God's applause. God's applause. The sweetest words any of us will ever hear will be Jesus saying, well done, good servant. Guys, we're all people pleasers. I am. You know what a slavery that is. If you let this get in your bones, it'll set you free. If you ask God to give you a longing to please, the only one you were meant to please, it'll set you free from whatever the rest of us think about you. Imagine uh, you, whatever you do that you'd be most proud of. Imagine that you've done it, and you've done it really well. And everybody in your life that you care about is standing around you, and they're going nuts. They're cheering, clapping. Your family's there, your friends are there, your spouse is there, your kids are there, your parents are there, your friends are there, your colleagues, and they're going nuts for you. Good feeling. Or, uh, no offense, but I, I hate the show American Idol, mostly because, I mean, the name is just awful, <laughs> Idol. But pick your favorite reality show. For, for me, I'd love to win So You Think You Can Dance. And imagine that you've won your favorite reality show, and it's the end of the show, and you're standing on stage, and millions of people, millions of people are cheering for you. What a feeling. But it's a lie. It's a lie. Hear me and believe me when I tell you that all the applause of all the people in the world will not add up to God's applause. We all want to be satisfied. We all want approval for our work. But our greatest satisfaction will come only from the one we were made to satisfy. That will be our ultimate approval. Others will try to have input along the way. Others will try to judge us. But ultimately, we labor only for the approval of Jesus. And when we stand before him and hear him say, well done, it'll all make sense. It will. And at that point, God will go on to give you more. And the other reward that's specifically mentioned in this parable is a really interesting one. He'll go on to give you more responsibility. Interesting gift. But God says, if you're faithful with what little bit I've given to you on earth, I'll give you even more when Jesus returns. I think part of what this parable is telling us is that in heaven, in this new creation, we're going to have jobs. God is going to ask us to help him co-rule his kingdom with him. And there will be different levels of responsibility awarded to us based on our faithfulness in this life. I don't know how it's going to work. I think we'll all be equally happy, but we'll have different roles. Some of us may be asked to lead ten cities, maybe five cities, maybe one city, maybe a city block. Maybe you'll get a Starbucks. How can there not be Starbucks in heaven? But God says, if you're faithful with a little bit, I'll entrust you with a lot. There's actually a great principle embedded in there that can be applied to any area of your life. Leadership starts with good stewardship. It does. No one starts off as a CEO. No one starts off as a president. You start in a low place, in a humble place. Take advantage of opportunities that are given to you along the way, and then, by the grace of God, your, your responsibility grows. Pride is when you want leadership or you want a promotion that you haven't proven yourself ready for. You've got to start with the small thing. One of the things I love most about this parable is that I think it tells us that it's not wrong to want responsibility. To the contrary, I actually think if God is giving out responsibility as one of his gifts, we ought to crave it. Some of us 
Some of us spend most of our lives trying to avoid responsibility. Some of us view our work as nothing more than a means to a comfortable retirement. I think this parable ought to challenge that line of thinking. For me, I love the fact that this parable says it's not wrong to want authority. It's not wrong to want responsibility. It's not a bad thing to aspire to leadership, to want to make a difference. It helps, for me at least, it helps keep this world a lot more in perspective, though, when I realize that ultimately those longings may not be fully satisfied until Jesus comes back. As a kid, uh, I wanted to be president of the United States. I was that kid. I was president of my student body in middle school, high school, and college. And, you know, look, I think to some extent those desires are still in me. At its root, it's probably a desire to lead a life of greatness, to impact people beyond those within my direct sphere. For me, part of the message of this parable is to strive for greatness in the small things, in the life I have right now, in the job I have right now, in my family, in my marriage, with my kids. Use it all as opportunities to invest in God's kingdom. You have to start with the small things. You may remember, this is 2006, you may remember the story of Kyle McDonald. He was a blogger. He started with a paper clip, a small red paper clip. He bartered from one thing to the next until he ended up with a house. He, he documented it all online. It took him more than a year. He traded the paper clip for a pen, the pen for a doorknob, doorknob for a used camp stove, and on and on and on and on until he eventually ended up with a house in Saskatchewan. So he had to live in Canada, but it was still a house. <laughs> and I think we ought to think about what our paper clips are. What are the small things in your life that you can use to invest in God's kingdom? And by the way, to grow something from a paper clip to a house, you've got to take a lot of risk along the way. And I think this parable tells us that God rewards risk-taking if it's done in faith. The first two servants took on several risks. For one, they took on the risk of increasing this king's authority within what sounds like a pretty hostile environment. Because all the citizens didn't want this guy to be king, and they're investing his money somehow within a pretty hostile environment. So they're taking on the risk of being attacked or ridiculed. They're also, of course, taking on the risk of investing in something that loses money, a bad investment. Like the third servant, it's pretty tempting, isn't it, to duck for cover, to try to find a safe place to hide. But Jesus condemns trying to be safe. By the way, if Jesus is condemning it, it's actually not very safe. There is no safe. Some of us view Christianity the way the third servant viewed as mine. We keep it wrapped up in a handkerchief. We don't talk about it. We don't invest in it. We don't try to make it grow. Jesus has given us a great inheritance. Within Jesus contains the answer to every important question any human being has ever asked. Imagine taking all of that, putting it in a handkerchief, and putting it in your sock drawer. We're not told what would have happened if the investments made by the other two servants had lost money. But I think there is an implication that God loves faith-filled risk. Eugene Peterson translates verse 17 of this parable in the message this way. He says, risk your life and you'll get more than you ever dreamed of. Play it safe and you'll end up holding the bag. you get more than you ever dreamed of. You've got to be willing to risk your life. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily. There's a little word in there, easy to ignore, daily. I wish, don't you, that the Christian life would require one big heroic act, that it was just a matter of saying, God, take me, use me. But it's daily. 
Christian life requires daily focused discipline during the boring, the uninspiring, the mundane days of our lives. We've got to be willing to let go of everything and take risks for God. How do you do that? Do you quit your job tomorrow? Do you become a pastor or a missionary? No, certainly not what I'm going to do. I think you ought to look at whatever situation you're in right now. Consider what you have to do tomorrow. Look for ways to glorify God in it. Think about what your little things are. Think about what your paper clips are, your minas are. Maybe money has a special grip on you. You don't have to be like Zacchaeus and give it all away at once. But start by being faithful with a little bit. Invest a little bit of it in God's kingdom. Maybe time is hard for you to give up. Start by investing little bits of it in God's kingdom. Maybe join a community group for the first time this fall. Or maybe get up a few minutes earlier in the morning and spend some time with God in prayer. Whatever you've got right now, your job, your talents, your resources, your money, that's your mina, that's your paper clip. Look for ways to invest it so that it grows God's kingdom. The king is away, and we've got a season of opportunity. It's not too late. He's inviting us to participate with him in his kingdom building. And when he gets back, he's going to reward us with responsibility in his kingdom, inviting us to help him co-rule it with him. So be faithful. Get started. You can start small, but you've got to take some risks. And it requires denying yourself daily. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you want our lives to count. Thank you that you want to use us. What a privilege to be invited to share in your work. What an honor that you want to work through us to help build your kingdom. Thank you that we can start small. Thank you that it's not too late. Thank you that nothing gets sorted out, that no judgment is final until you return. So I pray that you help us find our, our minas, our paper clips, the things we can use to invest in your kingdom. In your holy name we pray.